This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Emma Shortus. Emma is a research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, and she's also a US politics expert. She joined me on this day, the 10th of November 2020, for an in-depth and extensive analysis of the US presidential election. We discuss what happened, what does it mean for the US, and what does it mean for the rest of the world, including Australia. Uh, We are going to talk now with Dr Emma Shortis, who is a research fellow at the EU Study Centre, and um, that is based at RMIT, that centre, and Emma is a trained historian. She has a PhD in um, history, particularly looking at the history of Antarctica and environment policy, and of course the US plays into that as well. And um, Emma had the great pleasure of spending some time over in the US herself, studying over at Yale as well. So she's had a really um, great chance to experience firsthand how America is, and I'm sure she soaked up a lot of the politics. And it's so great that um, when I first chatted with Emma on this show back in the start of 2017, Emma was actually over in the US, and that's how we first got to know about Emma. So I'm so glad that I now get to welcome back onto the show after appearing so many times um, over the last four years to talk about a major development in US politics, one that we have really, you know, been looking to for a very long time and has now come to fruition. So welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for joining me again. And uh, also congratulations and hats off to you for doing such a phenomenal job informing the public and um, doing all these media interviews. You've been in high demand and is it any wonder? Oh, thank you, Amy. You're too kind. Yeah, it's it's been a, a busy week. I'm I'm pretty tired, but um, no, it's it's been a really, as you say, it's a it's a hugely significant development in American politics, which of course is is still playing out. It is, it is, and one of the things that you often hear, or I think might even pop into some people's minds is, well, why do we care about U.S. politics? You know, maybe they're a lost cause. Um, they certainly have got their own issues, Um, things are always so chaotic, or at least in recent times have been very chaotic in US politics. What on earth, you know, why why do we care about US politics? And that certainly um, has come up, at least the argue for why we should care, it has come up in the conversations we've had in the past around the Supreme Court. Um, But America, um, whether it likes it or not, has had huge influence in global politics and policy, and um, it continues to do so even when it does um, some pretty crazy things um, in terms of breaking conventions of all kinds and um, changing course in global policies. So from your perspective, just so we can prepare the ground, why do you think you know we focus and have focused so much on American politics in recent times? Because every election, every presidential election, you've seen growing interest not just um, in Trump, but even before Trump, in in presidential elections. And I think here in Australia, it wasn't necessarily as pronounced as it used to be. Yeah, look, I think that's true. I certainly think interest has grown, especially as the kind of spectacle of American politics has gotten wilder and wilder over the last few years. But look, I think for better or worse, the United States is the most powerful 
country in the world and has been since the end of the Second World War. It's the world's biggest economy. And so it has enormous influence on global politics and, and our kind of daily lives. And I think one of the most obvious examples of that, just even in the last couple of days, Amy, has been around the election of Joe Biden and his climate policy. So he, Joe Biden has quite a, especially if we consider the kind of the recent past of climate politics, Biden's climate platform is really radical. He has committed to net zero emissions economy by 2050, and that, that's going to require radical economic reform in the United States. And that, of course, affects us to the point that, you know, where there's a reluctance to talk about climate politics as, as part of mainstream politics in Australia. But, you know, when Scott Morrison was kind of giving his um, statement, I guess, congratulating um, Joe Biden just the other day, the very first question he got was about Biden's climate policy and how that's going to influence Australian policy and the role that Australia plays in the world, our relationship, not just with the United States, but with other countries and, and places like the European Union, which, of course, is pushing hard on climate action as well. So there are very real and very immediate consequences for us and for our government especially to navigate. So I think, you know, again, that's just kind of one example how quickly um, the United States can shift the terrain of, of global politics and, and one of the many reasons why it matters to us here. Mm. And certainly uh, China has also done some major things in terms of climate policy as well. So when you're seeing, you know, the two major powers in the world moving faster on climate change than Australia, um, you know, and having, I think, far more challenges to do so, we are well placed to actually confront climate change and deal with it. And we saw um, even with a so-called carbon tax um, that emissions did actually go down and, you know, the world didn't collapse, Australia's economy didn't burn to the ground. Um, so it is interesting to see that. And one of the things that we might get to a bit later in this conversation is the um, Biden foreign policy position, because, of course, that was something that did come up during the election. And a lot of people um, in the media in particular and um, Trump supporters were saying, oh, well, you know, you're a socialist and, um, you know, you'd be friends with like all the socialist dictators. And um, and Joe Biden was making every effort um, to to prove his credentials that he wasn't a socialist and of course, coming looking at that from Australia, it kind of seems quite absurd and odd. Um, but that is something that is obviously quite specific to America in terms of their their hang-ups um, with the left and extreme left, um, so to speak. So we will get to that in just a minute. But I want to take our minds back uh, a week, really. It's not that long ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, we did have voting occurring on Tuesday... Uh, America time and was it Tuesday? It was Tuesday. Am it I was, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. still like Wednesday our time. In a daze. Yeah. Wednesday was the day that we were all at particularly in the evening, um, but even earlier, looking at the results coming in and getting a bit nervous uh, about what was going on. And it was a lot of drama occurring. And we did see some of these um big states go to Trump early. So we saw thing, uh, states like Florida um, that really got a lot of people nervous. Um, and maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but uh, it certainly was. And there were some counties in Florida 
that got people nervous that because they had flipped um, and gone to Trump. And even though Florida is a um, Republican uh, type state, it's like the governor is Republican. Florida is a very important um, state in this uh, presidential system and the electoral college. And it, each state, we should say, and we have mentioned in the past, but it is kind of important to mention because it's very different from Australia's um, electoral system, is that they all have a certain number of electoral votes depending on which state you win. So you have to get to a certain number of votes to actually win the presidency, electoral college votes. So I'll let you um, get into more detail about that and do it far better than I. But Emma, when you were looking on Twitter and watching the results come in and you saw Florida um, what were your thoughts at that time and how did we see things start to evolve in terms of the early results that were the in-person voting results? Yeah, sure. So you're right that, that Florida was kind of the first big call in those really consequential states that tend to kind of swing between um, Republican and Democrat. So so when Florida was, was looking early on like it was going to go to Trump, it certainly gave me pause for, for a number of reasons, not, not the least of which is that in um, the previous election, of course, Florida falling to Trump was basically the beginning of the end for Hillary Clinton. That's when it sort of became clear that she wasn't going to win. And so Florida going for Trump, to Trump again, I think, gave a lot of people pause for that reason. Also, because, I think of it course, was triggering. It was. It was a little <laughs> bit of, yeah, I think a little bit of that muscle memory. Um, yeah. Because um, Florida also, of course, decided the, the 2000 election, which was a very close election. Um mm. And there were early indications, I think, out of Florida that that gave people reason to worry. And one of those was, you, you mentioned, Amy, those kind of county-level counts. So, so Miami-Dade in particular, which is supposedly a kind of left-leaning um, county, you know, it sort of tends to lean Democrat, went for Trump. And so there were there was a lot of kind of prognosticating on Twitter about how this this is this is voting very badly for Biden. If, if a place like Miami-Dade, which is supposed to be left-leaning, is going for Trump, you know, we're in big trouble. But, of course, as, you know, a, a lot of people also subsequently pointed out, Florida was never critical to Biden's path to victory. His campaign had never seen it as central. It certainly would have been handy to win and, and would have been a really strong showing for Biden early on, but he didn't need to win Florida in order to clinch the presidency, as is, as is obvious, of course, now. But Trump did. And so it, it certainly heartened Trump supporters at the time that, that Florida was going their way. But then sort of over the course of, of the evening, it became clear that that nobody was going to win in that massive line, landslide, which I don't think it, I don't think anybody who pays attention to American politics and that the way that the presidential elections are structured, Amy, because as you said, the the popular vote isn't actually relevant to who is elected president. It doesn't decide who's elected president. So the fact that Biden was, you know, 10 points ahead or whatever in national polls, while it was a really good indication for Biden, didn't necessarily mean he was going to win. And and his administration, sorry, his campaign knew that all along. And they had decided specifically to focus on winning back the so-called blue wall. So so the states like um, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania that had gone to Trump in 2016, Biden's, Biden's kind of whole promise was that he could win back the blue wall. He could win back particularly those white working class voters who had gone to Trump in 2016. And sort of over the course of Time's kind of, you know, <laughs> all blurring together. But but over the course of a few days, it sort of it, 
basically what happened because the count the counties is run differently in each state. So some states counted started counting mail in ballots and absentee ballots early, and so had strong showings for for Biden and the Democrats early. And some states did it the other way around. They counted in person votes first, and then counted mail in ballots. So that's why we had this kind of hodgepodge of, of results coming through. So somewhere like Georgia, for example, the state of Georgia they were counting in-person votes first. So we saw Trump having quite a significant lead in Georgia to the point where there was a lot of assurances that Georgia was gone to to Republicans and we could forget about Georgia. Once Georgia starts counting those mail-in ballots and and particularly the the absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots that had been mobilised by a huge on-the-ground voter enrolment effort led by Stacey Abrams, Democrat Stacey Abrams, it then became clear that Biden was actually catching up in Georgia and Georgia was essentially on a knife edge. Mm. And a similar thing happened in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania where initially Trump has kind of a significant lead because they're counting in-person votes and that turns out to be a so-called red mirage where where it looks like Republicans are ahead but, in fact, as votes are counted, as those votes are rolling in, Biden is catching up very quickly. And so that's what happened in in Michigan and Wisconsin and also Arizona, which was, an I think, you know, not not getting a whole lot of attention in in national discussions about oh. how this was going to play out, and and Arizona is a really, I think, a really interesting one because it is again a, a pretty, um, or historically, it's been a pretty safe Republican seat. It hasn't gone Democrat for for decades, I think, since Bill Clinton was president, and so it sort of didn't factor into to many conversations. But there, some early analysis is suggesting that there was a kind of unexpected thing at play in that. John McCain, who was a Republican senator for Arizona, he um, ran for president against Barack Obama in 2008 and passed away a couple of years ago. And he was a kind of a, a foil to Trump, I guess. Trump Trump hated him and treated him with what many would describe as as really kind of appalling disrespect. You know, this this is the guy that, that was a um, prisoner of war in Vietnam and, and Trump said early on, you know, a couple of years ago, oh, he's, he's not a hero. I, you know, I like heroes who don't get caught. So he... In, and in the context of American politics and the kind of um, valorization of, of military service, that was that was seen as something that almost should have killed Trump's career then and there. And it seems like all of that and and Trump's continual criticism of McCain, even after he died, has pl- played for Trump really poorly in Arizona and actually factored into decision making there in a way that polling and and pre polling just just didn't really capture. And so I think there's there's lots of really interesting things going on in the ground, kind of on the ground in the, at the kind of state and, and even county level that show really just what a complicated mess the American electoral system is. Mm. Yeah. And, and Arizona and Arizona flipping, I think, was was an indication, a, a sort of early indication that, that Biden was on a path to victory. And as much as that wasn't called until I think if I've got my days right, Amy, I think it was on Saturday, our time, that, that it was finally called for Biden. I think a couple of days before then it was it was pretty clear that, that that's where things were heading. Yeah. And I mean John McCain is really well, was really a statesmanlike figure. He had a lot more significance to American politics than just any politician. So yeah, it, it certainly was Something I don't think potentially, well, clearly they didn't factor in because um, Trump had visited Arizona quite a lot and had put a lot of um, time into it. And one of the other interesting parts about Arizona 
which I particularly enjoyed, was that Fox News called Arizona for Biden first Mm. and had Biden ahead for a very long time um, before any of the other news outlets decided to call Arizona for Biden. So, um, you know, there are such things as decision desks, which are, you know, these polling um, and statistical analysts who are very expert in doing this and they do it with every election and um, they are independent. And we did see that when um, Fox News called Arizona for Biden, that really um, riled up Donald Trump and also the rest of his campaign. And um, certainly a lot of political pressure was put onto Fox News to reverse their decision. And uh, and interestingly, they didn't. And they held the line and they were very clear um, and, and stood their ground and supported their um, decision desk people. Um, and it was very interesting, I think. I wonder what you, you thought about um, the way that the media was calling this, because they have an important role to play in the election results as well. Of course, they don't change the results, but they're the ones looking at the trends, looking at how much, how many votes are left to be counted and um, really predicting whether a certain state is going to go to which candidate so that the we can see how the poll is tracking, how many electoral college votes are tracking for each candidate, and then we know who the, the presumptive um, president will be. So I was interested in your thoughts because you were watching Fox uh, occasionally, like I was, I saw on Twitter. And if you take Tucker Carlson out of the equation for one minute, and maybe Hannity <laughs> as well, if you take them out, what were your thoughts on on the way that Fox approached um, things like calling Arizona and the type of um, pressure they had, and what potentially um, were there any motives for being the first to call Arizona? Look, I think that's a really, it's a really interesting question. And, and to me, as yet, to be honest, it, it's its sort of unclear because because that decision was a really significant one to call that. I mean, it, was, it wasn't kind of getting ahead of results, as you say. Oh. It was reflecting the results as they were. But for Fox to be the first one to make the call was really significant. And you're right, Amy, it apparently just enraged the Trump campaign to the point where they're sort of, you know, having screaming phone calls with, with Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and it was, it was absolutely the correct call. And I think, you know, part of what we we were seeing with Fox is that division between the news desk and the kind of opinion section of Fox mm. News, not 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 dissimilar to what we see in, in something like Sky News here, where the news desk is being sort of fairly resolute in in calling the election as it is happening. And and I think had been preparing for a long time for, for Trump, you know, doing things like refusing to concede or um, suggesting that there's been fraud. And, and part of the reason that the other networks were so reluctant to make early calls, even when it was fairly obvious what was going to happen, was because they were so so conscious of how they needed to to ensure that people believed in the integrity of the calls that they were making and in, and in the integrity of the count that was happening on the ground. So so I thought you know there was quite a bit of conversation here, for example, that the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, mm. Anthony Green was calling some states much much earlier than than they were calling them in the United States, and that was partly because, you know, the Australian media, of course, doesn't have the same kind of influence in the US and didn't have to necessarily be conscious of, I guess, the the optics and how what they were doing could influence the conversation, even to the point where, you know, the US 
US networks have to be careful about calling things too early because of the the vast time zone differences between the coasts. You know, if you call the east coast too early, that can actually affect turnout in mm. in the west coast. So the media, I think, was was more than usually. Um, conscious of, of the kind of influence they could have, you know, and watching, you know, something like CNN where I just lost count of the, the amount of times I, I heard it's it's too early to say that or, you know, we'll get those results soon. We can't say yet what's happening. Um, and that I think that's part of this, this broader effort to anticipate what the Trump administration is going to do and a very belated recognition that that what Trump is doing, what he has been doing for a number of years now, is an all-out assault on the integrity of American democracy. And I think what we saw, you know, with media kind of making calls or being being sure to wait and be certain was a recognition of that fact of what Trump was doing and that that what he was doing in especially in in talking about fraud and elections being stolen is very very dangerous and and overall I think the media had responded very well to that. I, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to Fox and what you're saying, Amy, about, you know, taking Tucker Carlson out of the equation. Who thought Biden was a hologram, like, yeah, yeah. and that Democrats were going to force Americans to drink Starbucks instead of corner store coffee. Yes. Yep, exactly. Like it, it is, it is absolutely wild to watch. But I think sometimes we, you know, we, we tend to treat this as, we tend to treat Fox as not part of the mainstream, but mm. but it is it is mainstream yep. in in the United States, and I think part of what is going on here is not you know I think people sometimes hope for a, I guess a new era of bipartisanship, and is is this you know Fox finally recognizing that that Trumpism you know is toxic and that they need to work to heal America? I don't think that's what's going on. I think what's happening is about self preservation mm. and recognizing where power is going to lie and responding to that accordingly. And I think Fox will continue to play the role that it has played in being in inciting that division and I think stoking conspiracy much as it did during the Obama years. You know, Fox will probably go back to being that oppositional force with underpinned by, you know, 70 million plus Americans that chose to go out and vote for Trump. You know, in a non-compulsory system, they yeah. they actively chose to go out and vote for Trump. And that is something that the, the Biden administration is is going to have to grapple with. Mm. Well, also, um, voter turnout, as you say, was very high. And um, we saw, you know, Joe Biden's talking about the fact that um, really he has had the largest popular vote of any president-elect. So, you know, he um, noted the huge turnout and uh, Donald Trump had a huge number of votes as well. So, yeah, it is. It's very important to to note just how um, substantial a change that is, because it's been such a Achilles' heel of America and American democracy to not have compulsory voting and to see such low numbers, especially um, with the Hillary Clinton election, where we saw that younger people didn't go out in the numbers that we had hoped that they would. Um, and so, there are when you see different segments not engaging politically, it makes a huge difference to the final outcome, which I guess is clearly not that surprising, but it is, um, you know, changes the way that America is for the next four years. Um, I want to pick up on some other states that are really critical and that were very critical. And we did see, and you've referenced um, there as well, that 
Joe Biden has so rebuilt the so-called blue wall, um, which, as you said, was about um, traditionally working class, largely white um, voters, but of course not solely white voters. And um, they were in some of the states like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and even Pennsylvania. Um, and we certainly saw some really strong changes there, um, although it is still quite close um, and some of them still haven't been called um, definitively. Uh, we are still waiting for the final vote count, but they have been called. Um, so we saw in order, um, let me just go back, we saw Wisconsin called, then we saw Michigan called, then we had this kind of stasis um, where we were waiting and waiting and waiting for votes to be counted. And um, I think it's important now to bring in what Donald Trump was doing, um, because this is really very vital to what we're seeing right now, um, to what we're seeing play out in terms of how um, the presidential election is going and the transition is going. And that is that we saw Trump um, make two speeches, really. The first one was um, really, really late. I think it was about was what was it like 2 a.m. Yeah, yeah. Um, in yeah Washington at the White House. It was a campaign event at the White House um, with heaps and heaps of uh, Republicans. No masks um, that I could see were being yeah. worn. Uh, lots of you know screaming, yelling. There were. A, I reckon about 50 American flags, or at least that's what it looked like, um, you know, with the special American president, um, you know, song being played when he walked in. So this was really quite a break from convention by using the White House, um, by, you know, using all the props of the presidency for something which should have been a campaign-style event. Um, and he was basically saying, well, actually you know, frankly, we did win. So that was kind of the first speech that we saw Trump kind of ramble um, and say some quite, you know, outlandish things and put doubt um, into people's minds about whether this vote was, um, you know, robust, whether there was fraud um, involved and um, him actually, you know, way too early declaring that he was actually um, the winner. And then we did see later on this other speech, which I'd love for you to also pick up on, um, which was in the, uh, what, what's it called, like the press room. Um, and he got up on the podium, gave this speech and took no questions and walked off. And that really, um, you know, I think was one of the, the biggest sparks really for um, a lot of the media to put their foot down and start to um, really really call out some of the things that Donald Trump was doing. So from your perspective, watching those two speeches, um, which which do you think was kind of really pivotal and how do you think it's it changed um, things, not, not the outcome, of course, but how do you think it's affected things? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess what I would say to that is that we – we knew that Donald Trump was going to do this. Like he had been signalling for months, really, that he he was going to refuse to concede. There were a couple of stories that came out just before election day where, when they sort of said exactly that. You know, if it looks like it's close in those blue wall states, Trump is going to to refuse to concede or or to start questioning the validity of those votes. So we knew he was going to do this. You know, we weren't exactly sure when or exactly how it would play out, but we knew it was coming. And so I think that's where, again, you know, the media were 
prepared for what was going to happen. And it was always going to be, and I, I think I've sort of been saying this for a while, it's, we know, we knew what was going to, what Donald Trump was going to do. And so what was going to be critical was how institutions around him responded to it, to it. That was going to decide, I suppose, whether this assault on democracy would be effective or if it would be contained. And at the moment, at least, it looks like the, the media reaction in particular and, and some institutional responses, in speci- especially at the kind of state level, have largely succeeded in dampening down that threat, at least, you know, in the, in the kind of immediate aftermath of the election. No- nothing is, is certain, of course. Um but it was it was still, I think, Amy, you know, quite extraordinary even to know that this was coming, to know that Donald Trump was going to do this, but then to actually see a president of the United States come out and claim fraud in this way. And as much as, you know, I've spoken about the, the media kind of responding well, I think, you know, he is, he is still being supported in that by the people around him, by his administration and by figures, important um, figures in the conservative media like Tucker Carlson, like Sean Hannity and surrogates like Newt. Gingrich, you know, on going out on Fox News and and questioning the validity of of the ballots. And I think it's also, it's really important to acknowledge the way that Trump's, the the kind of white supremacist underlinings of, of Trumpism and Trump support play into that. Because in those, you know, you mentioned the kind of the, the, the blue wall, Amy, and that, that we've talked about that promise that Joe Biden made to win back the white working class. In those states, white people in America generally kind of white people have have voted for Trump they they've been very clear in making that choice and I don't think we can sort of make the argument anymore that it's not about racism you know I think it very clearly is and that shows at the kind of state level in somewhere like Pennsylvania where early on you have the kind of counting that's reflecting that red mirage which is largely coming from pre- predominantly white rural counties and then as time goes on as those days goes on, go on you see counting coming in from a place like Philadelphia which is much more diverse and has a much higher population of African Americans for example who voted over- overwhelmingly for Biden and what you see in what Trump is doing and, and what Fox News are doing is basically saying that the early votes counted, the early votes essentially cast by white people, they count. And the ones coming in later from places like Detroit, which Tucker Carlson called something like the worst governed place in the Western Hemisphere, and then went on to say, those people in Detroit, they are deciding on who your president is. And I think that is a very, very clear racist dog whistle to Trump supporters. And so as much as you know, the media is responding very well. And even in that second speech, Amy, cutting away from Trump altogether and, and in, yeah. a, in a way really undercutting his power. And I think potentially kind of drawing a line under under that power that Trump has had over the media as president, where the media is now pivoting to treating him much more like a kind of maybe not a normal guy, but, you know, not not with su- not allowing him to have such power over the narrative to, to see the ground shifting that way. But I think that, you know, both things can be true at once, that that, that is happening in the media is responding well, but the racist dog whistling is is still happening and it's very much connected to to the integrity of the the American political system. Mm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, Philadelphia is where we've seen um, a lot of criticism from um, the Trump campaign and we have seen that there are legal challenges 
on many levels in um, many different states. Uh, and, of course, we've been watching so much um, legal discussion <laughs> happening. Um, you know, is there any chance that these uh, these lawsuits will have any success? And um, this morning on RN Breakfast, uh, we heard from the lawyer who really led um, the Florida case, Barry Richard, and he was saying that he saw that there would be no merit or chance in any of the lawsuits that had so far been filed by the Trump campaign. So um, it's interesting that, you know, we saw all this bluster from Donald Trump about saying, quote, we're hearing stories that are horror stories. We think there is going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence and so much proof. Well, you know, all the legal experts have said there is no evidence or proof um, in any way that you know, there's been widespread fraud that would change the outcome of the election. It hasn't been stolen from Donald Trump. Um, you know, the democracy or the, the system, the electoral college system and voting system has played out as it had intended. That doesn't mean that there aren't flaws, though. And we've highlighted um, those flaws in previous conversations about, um, you know, voter suppression and mm. disempowering um, American voters in so many different ways. So, you know, it's not perfect, but there is no grand Democrats conspiracy to um, steal the election from Donald Trump, um, which I think is you know, clearly important to keep on reinforcing because there's another, there is another reality that not just Donald Trump wants people to think is real, and that is that there is some kind of merit, even a, a slither of a merit, to what he's actually saying, and there isn't. Um, and one of the things, one of the critiques that we saw um, on Twitter, which I guess is not that representative of the whole world, but we did see um, some people criticising the way that um, Australian media had been reporting Donald Trump's speech by saying that we should have been clearer to say that it was um, alleged that there were false claims um, instead of running banners that really just quoted him verbatim without you know, putting it in context and providing the critical analysis and um, what the, the major... American news outlets were doing, which was, you know, really saying it's false, it's baseless, it does, has no evidence in reality, there's no evidence, there's no um, reality to these claims. What are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, we um, saw Australia kind of behind in the way that we were reporting the, the types of claims that Trump was making that really completely outraged so many Americans who rightly felt that their own um, democracy was under attack. It has already been under attack, but they felt like this was one of the most um, blatant and bald-faced um, attempts. Yeah, look, I think that's exactly that's exactly what it was, and and it is ongoing. And I think, look, there's there's definitely been a, a sort of mixed reaction in Australian media. I think I think there's a little bit of complacency, a little bit of this kind of, well, this is happening, you know, over there, and we can just kind of watch, so we don't have the same weight of responsibility for what is going on. And look, I think up to a point that is true. You know, I don't think Australian media is is influencing necessarily what is happening in the United States, but at the same time we we are deeply connected not not the least by of course someone like Rupert Murdoch of course who has yeah. a huge amount of influence here in Australia and I have seen Amy exactly as you said quite a quite a lot of coverage in Australia which did things like say Trump declares premature victory you know without any scare quotes or whatever and then mm. 
Biden, you know, Biden is, says he is, scare quotes, on track to victory. So there's certainly that kind of partisan coverage going on. And we even saw some, you know, some liberal conservative MPs talking about how the election had been stolen from Donald Trump. So I, I think we're seeing yes, very similar yeah. problems in, in our media and, and in our politicians. And I do think Australian media has been kind of reluctant to engage with that conversation, you know, has has kind of seen itself as separate from, from what is going on in the United States and somewhat immune from the kind of problems that are plaguing the US. But I think, again, that that's pretty complacent. You know, I, I do think we have a stronger democratic system with more integrity than the United States does, purely because we have things like compulsory voting or an independent electoral commission. But that doesn't mean that we should be complacent because there are there are those really significant connections between us and the United States and particularly around things like the media, but of course those white supremacist networks. You know, we we know that that has real consequences and has had real consequences in places like Christchurch. So I do think that we need to be careful in how our coverage looks to the United States because it does, you know, in, in some ways it does get imported here. Yep. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis from RMIT, and we're talking about the US election. Um, so we got to a point where uh, at about 3.30 in the morning, I can't even remember, was it on, what was it, Sunday morning or Saturday morning? <laughs> I'm not going to even pretend I know what day. I don't remember. <laughs> it was sometime on the weekend anyway. It was very exciting, and I was somehow awake. I, I, I was asleep, and then I woke up. I must have had a sixth sense that something was going on and check Twitter and literally one minute ago, Associated Press calls Pennsylvania for Biden. And um, it was, well, I think a, a relief for some people, a lot of people in America and was very, um, you know, exciting for a number of people in Australia as well. Of course, it's not the same for everyone, um, but we did see that call be made finally um, and that really was a very significant point. And Joe Biden had been waiting until it was abundantly clear, at least from the call, that he would then give a speech to then officially claim victory. Um, and traditionally, you would then see a concession speech from the loser. That would be Donald Trump. And at the time that we saw this call being made, Donald Trump was um, playing on his golf course in Virginia uh, he then did that again the next day. So he's been playing a lot of golf as he had been throughout his whole presidency. Um, but we did see, you know, some really interesting commentary about the way that Trump has responded um, to this situation. Um, one that I loved was CNN's Anderson Cooper saying this was after the speech that we had seen and we've just been referencing um, in the White House, the second speech. We see him like an obese turtle on his back, flailing in the hot sun, realising his time is over, but he just hasn't accepted it and he wants to take everyone down with him, including this country. Um, and watching that live with such a deadpan delivery was probably one of the most, you know, funny, but also like quite deeply serious moments. Um, and that was before we saw Pennsylvania called. We have seen Trump continually deny that he's lost going, playing golf, seeing Rudy Giuliani turn up in front of what was it? The Four Seasons. Total Landscaping. Total Landscaping. I should have that burnt into my brain. But um, it was a Philadelphia groundskeeping company situated between a crematorium and a sex shop. 
And um, that was the moment that it was called and Rudy Giuliani was, um, you know, going, oh, what's being called? Pennsylvania. Um, Tell me, Emma, about how the Trump campaign is now behaving um, from that point. Of course, it's been happening, you know, throughout this um, results season or time of at least a week now. Um, But what have we, what have we now, where are we at? you know, in terms of Rudy Giuliani, in terms of the Republican senators, for example, um, you know, have we seen people come out and strongly support Donald Trump in his strategy? Have we seen people hide under the blanket and hope that no one notices? And I'm winking at Mike Pence here. Um, You know, what are are the kind of responses that we're seeing to this strategy of not conceding um, and and then, of course, not even um, allowing for the um, the transition situation to actually start to even receive the funding to start the transition team that um, traditionally starts now. Yeah, so I I think that is really significant because I've I have seen a lot of coverage about you know people kind of the usual such suspects like Mitt Romney who mm. who's a, a senator a Republican senator who's kind of come out and and the way that people characterise his remarks is that it's a, a strong rebuke of Donald Trump and Republicans are starting to turn on Donald Trump. To be honest, I I don't see that. What I see is Republicans who have for five years continually fallen in line behind Trump, just biding their time, just just waiting to see. And a lot of them, I think, are hoping that he will concede. They're hoping that he will see the writing on the wall and kind of slink away or whatever. They are. They have done that historically. They've kind of waited for him to to back down in in other issues, and then when he hasn't, when he inevitably hasn't, when he's inevitably doubled down, they tend to fall in line behind him. So I I wouldn't have the same kind of faith that I think some commentators do about the Republicans being you know willing to kind of concede this loss. They will be looking to seventy million plus in the in the popular vote and also potentially retaining the Senate or or at least being very close to retaining the Senate and making very clear calculations about how they can hold on to power and how they can kind of cement a conservative bent in the institutions of American politics. And if they think Donald Trump will help them in doing that, in you know if, if him refusing to concede is going to help them to hold on to that kind of power. They'll line up behind him. You know, I don't. I don't think that many of these Republicans, particularly people like Mitch McConnell or even Mike Pence, have an interest in in upholding the integrity of American democracy. They have an interest in retaining power, and and I think that's how we have to understand their behaviour. And again, you know, you can see that in in all of the people that Trump has appointed in the administration, from you know, kind of low level officials who don't usually get much attention, who are doing things like refusing to sign the letter that opens federal funding for the Biden transition team to start working on getting, you know, their cabinet in place, to get their nominations in place and to kind of start understanding what it is the Trump administration is doing. I think Trump is the, is the kind of guy who cannot process the humiliation of a loss and will attempt to burn it all down, at, you know, as he goes. And we see that with him. You know, he's just fired the Secretary of Defence, Mark Esper, via tweet. Um, Esper has now said he's worried Trump's going to, fire the head of the CIA and and all these other organisations. Um, and, and that's kind of what we have to remember, you know, as much as Trump is potentially that kind of turtle on its back and how that is, like, it is a, a funny and very poignant image, it's also true at the same time that Donald Trump 
is the president and remains the president until the 20th of January and has all the powers of the presidency at his disposal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that is really disturbing. And one of the things that was interesting is that um, Trump wanted Esper to use the military, the US military forces um, in law enforcement during those um, Black Lives Matter protests across the US. So the fact that he's gotten rid of someone who was not willing to do that um, in a in a wide scale sense um, is interesting and maybe indicative of what's to come. I hope it's not. Um, but it does seem like, as Trump has done with judicial appointments, he's setting up um, situations to work in his favour. And uh, that, to me, is quite disturbing. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree. And I've, I've had a few questions recently about, you know, about Trump's powers and like, you know, the kind of absolute nightmare scenario with, you know, can Trump still launch the nukes? And the answer to that question is is yes, because he he's the president of the United States. But until the 20th of January. But again, it kind of goes back to that question, Amy, I think you're getting at, that it's about how people around him respond mm. and and how, how if they respond with integrity or, or if they respond with a desire to kind of hold on to power. And the danger in the American system that where we're dealing with political appointees is that Trump can, you know, put people in and has put people in who will support him no matter what he does. Um, so, again, see, I'm doing this. I do it every time, Amy. I'm always <laughs> do, do making making things seem seem very bleak. But it is it, it is not as as much as you know having Trump lose an election and and leave the White House is a, a moment of enormous triumph, I think, for the forces that have been opposed to Trump and the forces of American democracy. It's also not a time for complacency. It's not a time Mm. to think that everything's kind of magically going to go back to being stable and safe because we still have to grapple with this president as president for, for a couple of months yet, but also with the forces that he has really harnessed. You know, he didn't create these divisions and and these problems in American society, but he's harnessed and and emphasised them and they're they're not going away even when when and if he does leave the White House. Mm, Absolutely. And we won't finish on a doom and gloom note. Let's talk about Joe Biden um, and Kamala. I'm going to say Kamala Harris. I've practised that all weekend. Um, And those two uh, politicians we saw come out on Sunday noon, or a bit afternoon really it was, um, giving their victory speech. And it was quite healing and reaffirming and um, calming, I would say, mm. to watch someone who even the banners around them, I think, had the word empathy um, as being like the major trait of a Biden presidency, which was, you know, pretty striking, I've got to say, to see, because usually, um, you know, the words are kind of like action words or yeah. they're hyper-masculine. And this is something that has, um, you know, traditionally been seen as something that's a, a feminine trait. Of course it isn't. Um, you know, it's not exclusive to women. But to see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris Uh, push this idea of unity and empathy and reaching out and um, calming things down, being focused on science in their response to COVID and um, Joe Biden saying that the first thing he will do on Monday, which he's already done now, is to establish a coronavirus advisory committee, which he's done um, of 13 different people who are 
you know, experts in the field. Um, you know, all these things were very reassuring, I think, to a number of people. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were also seeking to reassure the other half of the nation, at least those who voted, um, that if even if you voted for, you know, Republicans and Donald Trump, we want, we want to represent you. And um, that is something that Joe Biden had already been saying in the presidential debates is, I'm not a president, you know, just for one side. I'm a president for all Americans. We are the United States of America. So he was, it seems, building on the rhetoric that he'd already established. Um, what are your thoughts on the way that that those speeches played out. They weren't, I don't think they were necessarily like the most memorable speech in all of time, but they did seem to serve their purpose. I think they did. I think that's exactly right. You know, I don't, I don't think they'll kind of go down in the, in the history of the United States as the best speeches of all time or anything like that. Amy, I agree with you there, but I think Biden, Biden and Harris did exactly what they needed to do. You know, he, Biden came out and sought to to kind of calm some of the volatility of American politics to to reassure Americans that he cares about them. You know, in contrast to the the current occupant of the White House, Biden has really leaned into this this figure of of empathy and shared grief. When you know we can't forget, we're now up to to two hundred thirty seven thousand plus Americans have died. So almost everybody in the country is going to know somebody who is is either ill or has been killed by this global pandemic. And so Biden is is right, I think, to to share the grief of Americans and to to kind of make it his first priority to to address that and to focus on governing. And I think what he did in that speech in, in kind of focusing on those issues was was pivot really well to to focusing on the future and to kind of, as we were talking about earlier, to, to drawing a line un, under kind of Donald Trump and the Trump era and to say now is the time to move forward. And in that way, it kind of, it also kind of at least a little bit takes the wind out of what, what Donald Trump is trying to do, which is to keep the focus on him and to keep the focus on the results of the election. Biden, by not focusing on that and by not even really mentioning Trump, he, he might have mentioned him once in that speech um, or, or it was in the context of people who had voted for him. He's mm-hmm. taking the focus off Trump and, and, again, sort of taking away some of his power. And in concert, in concert with the media coverage, I think that's potentially been quite effective in, in undoing some of that um, dominance that, that Trump has had over the media narrative. So I think in that way it, it was really important. And also I think the, the acknowledgement by both Harris and Biden of the people who voted for them, you know, the people who did the work of politics in places like Georgia in registering people to vote and and working so hard at the grassroots level to get Biden elected. I think there was a real acknowledgement there of that work and and also the, the fact that people now felt like they could they could take a breath. You know, people had been, so many people I think had been so frightened for so long with good reason, you know, of, mm. of been frightened of Trumpism and, and Trump and Trump supporters because of the, of the actual bodily threat that, that Trumpism has posed to so many Americans. I think that this, these speeches were an acknowledgement of that and, and also kind of embodying a hope that, that that might change, that things might start to change in America, but also that things like systemic racism, uh, you know, climate action, white supremacy, et cetera, are things that are going to be really difficult to tackle and that this isn't this isn't over. You know, I suppose this is really only the start of something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what I loved about that um, speech as well was that uh, Joe said that he's Jill's husband 
which I think spoke to so many women. Um, But it was also great that he mentioned she was a teacher. Mm. You know, you're going to have a first lady who's a teacher and, you know, this is a whole new tone. Um, and And the first lady does have a lot of influence as well and can do a lot of good as Hillary Clinton showed when she was first lady. She um, had so much substance and policy focus in her role and it's really up to the first lady to decide what she does. Mm. Um, So, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see um, Biden and the Harrises in the White House um, because they do represent a lot of um, diversity and diverse experience um, in their lives and the types of um, families that they have as well. Um, I do want to pick up on the other races before we finish, and I'm talking about the House and the Senate, um, and these are two very, very important races because um, they do affect whether Joe Biden can actually easily or fairly easily get his policies through to actually enact them. And, of course, the president does have power in terms of, um, you know, signing executive declarations and these types of things. But uh, particularly looking at the House, it seems that the Democrats didn't do as well as they would have liked. And um, it was great to see some people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and um, people who she uh, would see as her political allies on the um I wouldn't say it's radical left, but the more progressive left, um, you know, actually being elected. But we did see, you know, them not do so well in the House as I think they would have expected. And then we saw the Senate result, which is now tied at, I think it's 48. And that means that we will see Senate runoffs in January um, decide whether Joe Biden will have control of the Senate, the Democrats, and and be able to actually do a lot more and do what he would like to do, I'm sure, which is get a lot done in his first term and potentially his only term, depending on, you know, how well he is. Yeah, that's right. I think a lot will come down to what happens in these races. So you're right, Amy, that the Democrats in the in the House of Representatives didn't do as well as they had hoped. They they in fact lost some seats, but they will retain their majority. Mm. That that majority is safe. It's interesting to see the um, the fights are already starting about why that has happened. With that that very usual conversation about you know it was because we we tacked too far to the progressive left. No, it was because we were you know making making appeals to centrists. We need to appoint centrists like Republican John Kasich to the cabinet. No, we need to point only Democrats you know this this has started already like in, in barely even the day after and it will be very interesting to see what happens there but I think the house is is safe for, for Democrats but as you say the, the Senate is going to be critical because any kind of legislative agenda that Biden wants to get through has to go through the Senate and it, and it will come down to Georgia so Georgia has a system where the candidate the winning candidate needs an outright, outright majority and and no senators got that in this elections. So there'll be a runoff in January. So we're going to have to wait until January to know if Biden has got the Senate. Um, I I sort of, as I understand it, the best Democrats can hope for is a 50-50 split in in the Senate, in which case Kamala Harris, the vice president, ends up having the tie-breaking vote, in which case, you know, Biden will, the Biden-Harris administration is going to have to hold together a very diverse coalition of of Democratic senators in order to get an agenda through. And that is going to be incredibly difficult, I think, especially for those really big ticket reforms, things like uh, climate action, um, addressing systemic racism, even economic stimulus, getting that through the Senate, I think will be very difficult. And Biden can, he can govern, you know, as much as he can through executive order. Um, You know, for example, he can rejoin the Paris Agreement by executive order. 
The trouble with doing that is that that kind of doesn't allow for really long-lasting systemic reform because executive orders can be pretty easily undone either by Congress or through the courts or, of course, by, you know, the next president, especially if they're from an opposing the opposing party. So so this, I think, will be very difficult for Biden. But he look, he will prosecute the argument that he has been in the Senate for a long time. He knows how it works. And he has a history of, of bipartisanship, of working across the aisle. That's been part of his pitch the whole time that, you know, he can work with Republicans. He, he'll, he sees... He sees the good in everybody. I think sometimes mm. to his to his detriment, but he will do his best. I think to work with Republicans in in that regard. Um, but what will be much more effective for Democrats is is to win those Senate races in Georgia. And we, I think, will just see eye watering amounts of money thrown at Georgia <laughs> in order to win those races. Yeah, I I agree. That's going to be really interesting. And you mm. did mention at the top of the program, Stacey Abrams, who. You've mentioned in the past as well um, in terms of her experience, um, you know, really having an election taken from her. Um, And she has just done an amazing job of um, working the ground campaign, getting, you know, over 800,000 voters registered in that state um, and people, you know, think there should be a statue a statue of Stacey Abrams and I'm sure many people agree that, you know, she's made a, an enormous contribution and she still is um, in these Senate runoffs. She's already um, mobilising people and that's, you know, really exciting to see that there are these really amazing go get politicians who are, you know, out there making a difference and doing the things that AOC is trying to get people to do, which is grassroots, bottom-up mm-hmm. uh, campaigning and not relying on top-down. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think in a lot of the races we've seen in, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, it's it's been really obvious that it's that kind of organising. It's getting people enrolled and mobilised that, that makes the difference. You know, in places like Philadelphia that we talked about earlier, where the African-American vote is has been critical. And it's been really interesting to see that Democrats are immediately focusing on that in Georgia, whereas the Republican senators are issuing joint statements about the integrity of the elections in Georgia and how they're, they're subject to fraud and the Secretary, the Georgian Secretary of State has to resign. So in that sense, the Republicans are kind of turning against each other. But I, I think the, the scrutiny on Georgia will just be extraordinary in, in yeah. the months to come because it, it will turn out, I think, to be absolutely critical to, to the success or not of, of a Biden-Harris administration. Mm, it's going to be a quiet January, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Happy summer in Australia and winter yep. in America, guys, because, uh, yeah, it's going to be very loud. Um, Emma, it's been so wonderful to, you know, go through this election in detail and we've, you know, haven't even touched all the things, but I think we'll have to leave it there. But I am so (laughs) grateful to you for your great expertise and insights as always. And it's really always a pleasure to talk with you. So thank you so much for joining us and giving us your time and thoughts today. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's all, it's always my pleasure to, to have this opportunity to really to kind of think it through and, and, and talk about it in a considered way. There's, there's not many other platforms where we can do this. So I am also very grateful to you. Oh, thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.